CoinRow Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRow Plus at CoinRowPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. The Coin World Podcast is back again for another great episode. You are not going to want to miss this. You need to be here. We're glad you are here as every week. This is Jeff Stark. And I'm Larry Jewett. We know it's a busy time of year, and we're glad that you're taking the time to spend some time with us here on the Coin World Podcast. Our thanks once again to the fine folks at Coin World Plus for what they do to support this event. We have a great show in store for you here because I had the opportunity to spend some time with Dave Shankman. He's won multiple Heath Literary Awards. He's been a contributor to Coin World. I mean, I could spend the whole 20 minutes right now just kind of telling you all about what it is. But you've got to listen to Dave because Dave has a lot that he can offer for you right here. And it is our pleasure to have him on for this podcast here. And it's our pleasure to have you along here as well, because like we say, this is the time of the year when things seem to get really, really busy. But you know what? Right now, first thing I got to think about is back a few, I think it's almost been a few years ago now, is that there was a story going around about a hidden treasure chest. And there was a lot of uh, talk about this. This is, I'm talking about the Forest Fen treasure. And Jeff, I understand you just recently found out that some of that's going to be up for auction. Oh my gosh, yeah. It was so exciting to find out that the finder of the treasure has has actually consigned stuff to an upcoming heritage auctions sale. And it was, man... You know, it was just about a year ago that Mr. Fenn died and the um, the the treasure was, I guess, located. And so just a couple weeks ago, three, well, maybe three weeks ago by now, Heritage announced that their December 12th auction was was going to include the treasure and all sorts of you know different lots you you've got the chest that was discovered in 2020 by Jack Stoof if that's how you pronounce his name it's one of those stories that i think shows how the power of treasure can captivate somebody whether they have a numismatic interest or not. And and to be fair, this treasure was not wholly numismatic. I mean, a lot of it was just chunks of gold and, you know, it's, uh, you know, jewelry and other disc and things. But there, there were, I believe, some coins in there. And the finder, Jack Stoof, um, he transferred the treasure, sold the treasure, and it, it eventually got in the hands of this Tesaro Sagrado Holdings LLC, which is bringing the majority of the treasure to auction. The consigner kept the chest, the, the dragon bracelet, and a handful of other items. Everything else in there 
is being offered. So there's a Liberty Head Half Eagle, or Liberty Half Eagle, a centuries-old Colombian gold ornament, gold flakes, pair of scissors, 549-gram Alaskan gold placer nugget, I mean, roughly the size of a hen's egg, 1928 St. Gaudens Double Eagle. Uh, The list just goes on and on. It's really super neat, and a lot of these pieces were, it looks like, were, were slabbed by NGC, that's Numismatic Guarantee Co., or company, and with a special label. And, you know, for those who aren't aware, Forrest Fenn was, you know, a, a, a man who uh, broke convention a little bit, and he, he self-published this book that had a poem in it. And in the poem, there were supposed to have been, there were keys to where this treasure was located. And for... I want to say 10 or more years, people, this, the poem, the memoir is the thrill of the chase. And there were nine clues in there. Supposedly some 300,000 people had searched for this treasure and, and more than one person died, I believe, looking for it. It's a story that got a, a lot of press in, you know, mainstream, you know, outside magazine or, you know, you're, local newspaper or whatever there was, there was a lot of coverage of this over the years lots of online news outlets as well and the treasure was found in 2020 and the the eccentric I, I believe he was involved in the art world some way Fenn died in 2021 and now the treasure comes to light comes to the market in 2022 and um, I will not be bidding I I don't <laughs> I I uh, don't. Uh, somebody asked me at at work today if I had any crypto currency. I said I barely have any real currency, much less cryptocurrency. You know, so I won't be bidding, but I'll certainly be looking forward to see how that auction does. And I know a lot of listeners. Well, I suspect we'll we'll be curious to know that that's coming to market and, you know, see what things do. Because, you know, in in these situations, it's not the objects themselves that have – I mean, yes, they obviously have an intrinsic value, the gold, but they're part of this broader story is what gives them the cachet that is really going to drive interest in this and, and ultimately drive the price to wherever it lands, wherever, you know, all it takes is two bidders who really want the object. You know, I, I know I've been to a lot of country auctions here in Ohio where coin world is over the years. And, uh, you know, I joked with the, the auctioneer. I said, I didn't end up buying much today, but, I sure was important because I drove the price up on a bunch of stuff, <laughs> you know, and then I had to bow out. You know, the, the underbidder is, is in many respects as important as the winning bidder. So anyway, that's that's the big deal. Fun story going on right now. Glad you mentioned it, Larry. Yeah, and to me, it's the deal about the discovery. I mean, the discovery is the important part. In fact, we're going to bring that up a little bit later on when we get around to talking about our this weekend coin world history. We're going to be mentioning discovery as well. But it's just like some of the stories of interest are we recently had one about metal detectorists and what they find and some of the things they discover on that. It's just like it's so neat to know that there are things out there 
that, you know, we might be able to find. It may not be as valuable, perhaps, as some of the golden treasure or something along that line, but still, you know, it just opens up that curiosity side of things. And it's curiosity is what drives us in a lot of ways, and we should never lose that curiosity. So, you know, that's an interesting story right there, but again, it all comes down to discovering. So I like to discover what happened right about this time of year in years past, if you've got something to offer for me here in this week in numismatic history. Absolutely. It is all about the thrill of the hunt and discovery. And the this week in numismatic history relates to a very important discovery, something we've talked about on in a recent episode. Um, for it was on December 8, 1848, that a man by the name of David Carter deposited the first California gold at the Philadelphia Mint. Now, we've referenced this in the last week or so because there was an anniversary about gold being turned in from this the, the California gold rush. James Marshall found it at Sutter's Mill early in 1848, and that helped spur the gold rush. Well, later that year in December, the Secretary of War, who was William L. Marcy, he received 228 ounces of newly minted California gold from the military governor of California. This was Colonel R.B. Mason. Marcy then had the gold transferred to the Philadelphia Mint with the instructions to use this gold to produce congressional medals for military general Zachary Taylor and General Winfield Scott. Any gold that was left over was to be used to produce gold quarter eagle coins. That's a $2.50 coin. And these coins bear the letters C-A-L above the eagle's head on the reverse. That's how you tell this gold came from the California gold rush. These are very rare, very valuable because of that connection. And, you know, according to Coin World Archives, it was on December 8th, 1848, that this deposit was made at the Philadelphia Mint. So, you know, California gold, Western gold, that's that's certainly fits in with the Forest Fen story as well. And, you know, wouldn't we all love to own one of these $2.50 face value gold coins with gold mined from that so, so important, so exciting discovery that really one of those seminal moments in American history that, you know, got people moving west, risking their lives, losing everything in many cases. You know, there were far more folks who lost than than won in that little gamble. But, you know, and, and things today that, I mean, if you're wearing Levi jeans, well, that relates to the fact that these were made back in the day to to for the miners to wear. So, I mean, there's just so many touch points in history that you can sort of point to that gold rush. You know, if you're banking at Wells Fargo, well, Wells, Far- Wells Fargo was the, you know, the transit company, if you will, for the wagons carrying people and gold and other things, goods west. So that's that to me was was what jumped out. 
And it's interesting to me because it happened to have the coin value spotlight coming up in the December 26th issue, and it was on the quarter eagle on the $2.50 coin. It was a little after the gold rush, but it's still because of, you know, the gold rush and the, the connection there that we had that unique denomination hanging around for so long. So it was just really neat, and it's always great to hear about these things, especially when they tie into Americana and the understanding. I mean, one of the biggest things about gold is that a majority of the people, because it was the way it was taught in school, majority of the people believe that the first gold in the country was discovered in California in the 1840s, when in reality, gold was discovered in the United States 50 years ahead of that. So I always think that that's neat whenever you're talking about gold, because it's a chance to educate people to some of the misconceptions and some of the realities of the precious metal. So thank you oh for sharing gosh. that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you have the Dahlonega, Georgia, but even before that, I believe, was the the Becklers in North Carolina, right? So, yep. you know, and, and those are those are all very amazing, fascinating, fun points of history. And, uh, you know, it's it's great to dive into that and really, you know, remind yourself if you already knew or, or certainly if you didn't know it before to learn that I was uh, – Along that vein, no pun intended, <laughs> I, was, I was interested to learn in doing this week in Coin World history, the story that I want to talk about from the December 7th, 1988 issue. 1988, what, is, what does that have to do with anything? Well, Dave Shankman, you're going to hear in just a little bit, wrote a book about Delaware tokens that was published in 1988. He wrote some other books too, Virginia in 2015, I believe it was, Maryland in 86, but certainly we're using Delaware, published in 1988, as the hook. What happened in 1988 in Coin World history, the story that we point to, I was totally surprised, had no idea of this. This, you know, I knew about the U.S. Olympic coins. That's, you know, if you've, if you've, paid any attention you've you know to the US series you've seen them in your, in your red book or wherever maybe a coin value spotlight what i didn't know was that in 1988 in early to mid december of 1988 the united states olympic committee they coordinated with sears kmart and montgomery wards i don't know that there's only but one or two of those left in the country, a Sears and maybe a Kmart, or maybe they're all Kmarts, I, I don't remember. But anyway, I certainly Montgomery Wards hadn't been around forever. But they, they cooperated with these retail outlets to have team members, Olympic athletes, promote sales of the 1988 U.S. Olympic coins and say thank you to the American public for supporting the program. Well, how did the public support the program? The public bought the proof and uncirculated gold and silver Olympic coins, and those surcharges helped raise, as of October 31st, 1988, $19.7 million in um, surcharges that went to support the athletes. And so, the athletes went out to America, across America, and there was a something like 117 or there, there, there were quite a number of athletes that were sent around the country to say thank you. And they were also, the coins were available for sale at these venues. And I got to thinking, you know, that's 
what a great way to cross promote a commemorative coin, a coin in general, get people, you know, aware of coins and, and, and the, the possibilities in U.S. coins. And, and I wondered if there was a, a certain way, something that could be done today that would have a similar impact. Now, you know, the other day I got an anime Wong quarter in my change and that got me thinking, well, okay, you know, maybe there's a, cause I believe she was an early movie star, right? And so maybe there's a, you know, at a, a events at the Grauman Theater in Los Angeles, which is a the famous site of some, is it the Emmys or Golden Globes, some Hollywood, you know, award show. Maybe they could have a special ceremony where they get somebody who's a current actor and, you know, they they do a signing or whatever. I, I read Lynn Stamp News, which is published by our, which is also published by Amos Media, our, our the company that owns CoinWorld. And there are stories all the time about stamp ceremonies and, and all the dignitaries that come to those. You know, there was one earlier in 2022 for Nancy Reagan and, you know, several well-known American politicians showed up and, and you know, it, I just... I wonder if things like that would help get people more more in tune and more more aware of of what's out there from a coin standpoint. And that's why they had the kickoff events that happened out in California, where Mint Director Ventress Gibson and others, including relatives of Anime Wong, had ceremonies, and they even involved an elementary school as well. So drawing attention to the contributions made by Asian Americans in the in the arts, but certainly that could be extrapolated upon more than just an introduction. You know, while you were talking about the 1988 Olympic athletes, it made me. Uh, Maybe remember that these were amateurs at the time, and that money meant a whole lot more. I mean, nowadays, some of the team sports that for the Olympics, they're professional athletes, and they're not going to be want to be bothered by that. But the amateur athletes had a little bit of a different viewpoint because they may have had a little bit more of a sense of appreciation for any of the fundraising done. So some of the changes in times, obviously working against the purity of these kind of activities, but certainly not not impossible. It can be done. It should be done. I mean, there are lesser sports that can benefit from it and that type of thing. As we talked about earlier about Discovery, there was a letter and it says, Daughter Finds Gold Half Eagle. And this letter starts out for about 10 years now. I have owned a metal detector. In all my wanderings through parks, playgrounds, beaches, etc., my total fines have amounted to about 53 cents and 6,434 metal can pop tabs. Recently, my eight-year-old daughter, Kate, and I were at a local park. She disappeared for five minutes to venture up a hill that's used in the wintertime as a toboggan slide. She returned from the hill with a puzzled look on her face, clutching something in her hand. To her amazement and my amazement, she had found an 1881 $5 gold coin in fine condition. That evening, we returned to the park, armed with shovels, picks, and a metal detector to find the mother load, but it was not to be. Her find was a solitary find. I can only think about the countless hours spent trying to find what she had accidentally found. 
And that was by D.W. Conrath from Elmhurst, Illinois. So there you have it, the thrill of discovery once again. Awesome. Well, now I want to discover if you know the answer to the last trivia question. Go ahead. And I may have, I have this may be a, another mea culpa from me, a little egg on my face. When I asked the question, I thought there had been a different name for it in the beginning, and now I can't find anything that says that. So, you know, things happen. But the question was, since we were talking to a young numismatist, young-ish, certainly in, you know, I don't, I don't know that once you're into college, you qualify as a young numismatist, but he's certainly young compared to most of the practitioners of this great hobby. So I asked, what was the first year of the ANA summer seminar? And I said, I think it was known by a different name then, but the year that the ANA gives is the year that we're looking for. And you, I believe, absolutely know the answer from your time at Coin World. You have learned this. So please do share that information. Oh, here's a perfect opportunity for me to, you know, show my expertise here, but I, I really, I don't recall. I mean, I'm more interested in the current and upcoming than I am in the past, but I know it goes back a ways. I mean, we talk about in the summer seminar, we talk about this with Dave Shankman. He's been a multi-time instructor in the summer seminar, but I, I'm not, I honestly don't know how far back it goes. Okay. I well I here I hyped you up and I, I thought you knew. So well now you get to learn. The the first year, according to the ANA, the first summer seminar took place July thirteen to nineteen in nineteen sixty nine, the summer of love. Or was that sixty eight? 1969 was the Miracle Mets year. I know that <laughs> in any event. According to the ANA and their Throwback Thursday post from a few years ago, 20 students came from 13 states to attend that first one. The theme was numismatics in general, a basic introduction to coin collecting. And it was termed a huge success. By the end of the week, one student had already made a deposit for the following year's seminar. Now, in more recent years, they get several hundred folks, I believe. Now, I know, I've, I've heard, I hear tell that this year's wasn't as well attended as years past. I think that's residual of, you know, pandemic travel and, and maybe some scholarships, like scholarships weren't offered by the ANA this year. I think they only did the previous year's holdover scholarships. Could be that, you know, the Witter Coin University is, is pulling people away into the, the the financial side, the dealer side of it. But but it certainly is, is a most important and august institution and one that the hobby needs to thrive. So you, you made your best effort. Maybe, maybe you'll get the next question. The next question I have for you, since we're talking about tokens with David Shankman, right, or you are, I went to the book, 100 Greatest American Medals and Tokens. This is published by Whitman about a decade ago with Catherine Yeager and Q. David Bowers. And I wondered, what is the highest ranking token in the book. Now, there's a lot of medals in the book because the title is Medals and Tokens, and the top, the number one item in this survey is the Libertas Americana medal. Well, there's several medals in the top 10, but there are some tokens. What was is the highest ranking token object, non-metal, in the top 100 
American Medals and Tokens book. So if you have that in your library, you can pull it off the shelf and find the answer. If not, maybe you can order that from the American Numismatic Association Library. If you are a member, loan that out. Doubt it would arrive before next week's episode, though. <laughs> yeah, probably not going to happen there. So while we're on the subject of tokens, this is a good time for you to give a listen to David Shankman, who is speaking about tokens and his experience as numismatic. Give it a listen. It is our great pleasure on the Coin World podcast to welcome in Dave Shankman as he is our guest for today. And we have definitely been looking forward to this opportunity here. I mean, we would take up the whole 20 minutes if I tried to tell you all the things that Dave has accomplished. And he's far from done with accomplishing all the ways that he can help us in numismatics. So, Dave, thanks so much for taking the time here this busy time of year to join us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure. Well, first off, I want to just get everybody familiar with you a little bit. So give us a little bit of background on how you got started in numismatics. I started collecting stamps when I was very young, probably about six years old. And I enjoyed that. But in the late 40s, I think around 1949, my mother gave me a little box of Indian head pennies that she had kept from when she was a child. And I was fascinated by them. They were they were a lot more interesting than stamps because it was something tangible that you could even spend. And about six months after that, one of my aunts gave me a silver dollar. She lived in Colorado when they, they were still around then. And uh, that did it for me. I, I got away from stamps and I started collecting coins rather seriously because by the time I was uh, in high school, I was actually dealing in coins. And I figured out real quickly that I could make money a lot easier by selling coins than I could by cutting grass or carrying newspapers. As a matter of fact, the man who lived across from me was a manager of a bank and he would let me come up and he would let me go through bags of silver dollars. And I found a 19030, which was uh, a very rare coin before the hoard came out. And I was able to buy my first car when I was 15 on the profit I made on that one coin. So that, that really hooked me. I went in the Navy in 1957 when I was 17 years old. And when I came out, I started dealing again. And I was working part-time for a coin dealer in Norfolk, Virginia, where I lived. And one day he handed me a box of Indian head pennies and asked me to, to package them up for sale. And I noticed that in the box, there was a few unusual items. They looked like Indian head pennies, but they weren't. So I showed them to him and he said, well, these are Civil War tokens. I was fascinated by these because every one of them was different, whereas Indian head pennies all looked the same except for the year. So that was my start in, in collecting tokens. And I one of the things I've noticed over the years is that hardly anybody ever goes from collecting tokens and medals to collecting coins. It always goes the other way. Even people like Dave Bowers, who has handled every U.S. coin probably in existence, is a, has always been a very serious token collector because he, he likes them as much as I do. But anyway, that's how I got my start. Well, when you're talking about tokens, I think one of the most often misunderstood is the attraction. And as you mentioned, when you first got a hold of these and you thought they were just regular coins and found out that there's a whole lot more to them, there seems to be a lot more variety available in tokens. Is that a fair assessment? 
Oh, absolutely. In Civil War tokens, there's thousands of varieties, a lot of which were struck for collectors. But when you get away from Civil War tokens, I think it gets even more interesting because there's so many types of tokens and trade tokens, which are tokens that have a denomination. They were good for something, which were issued by general stores and saloons and and so forth. They never end. I wrote the first edition of the Virginia catalog that I did was in 1980, I believe, and it listed 2,500 tokens. The second edition, which was published three or four years ago, lists around 6,000 tokens. So, and there's still more being being discovered. The thing about tokens is, unlike coins, where if you have enough money, you can own pretty much anything you want if, you, if you're willing to outbid everybody else. With tokens, it's not the same thing. As an example, I, I was a collector, I still am, of Virginia transportation tokens. And uh, one of the tokens, there was four denominations of it, were issued by a, a, a bus company in Suffolk, Virginia. I bought two of the four in... I guess the 1980s, I found two of the four. This past year, one of the other two I'm missing came up at auction. I was able to buy it for about $400. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever get the other one. The Rarity is a completely different animal when you're talking about tokens than when you're talking about coins. People refer to a 16D dime as being rare. It's not rare. It's very expensive. Uh, the same from any most any other coin. So if you have the money, you can buy them. With tokens, you have to find them. We generally, in things like trade tokens, if, if a token, if there's 10 or 12 known of a token, it's not really considered rare anymore. Scarce, yes, but not rare. Well, you mentioned this 1980, the first edition. So that segs me into your writing. Is that when you got interested in doing numismatic writing? No, I, I was. I wrote my first article that was in the Numismatist in 1964, and I started writing articles just because they, of things that interested me. And I wrote was right. I started writing a column for the Numismatist. I guess in the 70s, I co-authored it with Joe Levine, who was the owner of Presidential Coin Company, and we wrote this for for a few years and then stopped. So I don't know when I, I don't even remember when I wrote a column for Coin World, but I did for about five years. And in the meantime, I was writing other articles, primarily for the Token and Metal Society. And then obviously, the books, and then the books followed. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, you start out small like this and you get into the books and, you know, sometimes we can't make the leap from books because we don't want to see the book on the, uh, on the discount rack here. I mean, it's, it's almost like a personal thing to me. I know I could never write a book like that, but this writing journey that you've had, first of all, I mean, I want to get into that because you recently received some very prestigious honors. What was it like to win a Heath, Heath Literary Award? Well, I've won, I've won, I think, six of them. And last year, I actually won the first place and the second place Heath Literary Awards, which astonished me, but I didn't re- refuse them. It, it is a great honor, and it's an honor to win any award. I don't write to win awards. I write, write for the satisfaction of it, but it's always nice to receive recognition. 
most of the work that you do and most of the work that I've seen involves a lot of research. How, how do you find all the sources that you do? Because you're, you're really digging deep on, on some of this. What's your secret in research? Well, the, the internet has made it a lot easier. When I think back, the first the first book I did or the first three or four books I did were before the internet and before before computers. I, I, I started editing the TAMS journal uh, in, I guess, the late 70s. And uh, I was doing it on an IBM Selectric typewriter and also the books on an IBM Selectric, which means that if you had to change something, you pretty much had to redo the page. So word processing and then the internet makes it easier to do research. I did a book on Washington, D.C. tokens. And to do that, I had to make trips down to the Washington Library and use their city directories. Now you can often do that right online. It definitely has helped make things. We've we've used the word TAMS here, and I want to make sure that we get the reference properly to the organization, because so much of what we do in this collecting journey, whether it be coins or whether it be tokens, involves community. And TAMS is a very, very active organization that individuals should get familiar with. Explain TAMS. TAMS is an organization that was formed in 1961, and the original name was the Society of Token Metal and Obsolete Paper Money Collectors. Well, that didn't last more than a couple of months. And the paper money collectors decided to go their own way. And of course, that's when the Society of Paper Money Collectors was started. TAMS started publishing a quarterly publication in 1961, and it eventually got to where it is now, which is six times a year. And also TAMS has published over the years, numerous books and also supplement issues to the TAMS journal, which might contain complete catalogs on a certain subject. In, in other words, subjects that are not big enough to, to uh, justify a full book. So the TAMS has done a tremendous amount for the hobby as far as I'm concerned. And I think that anybody with an interest in tokens or metals should be a member. For the dues, which I believe are around $30 a year, you get a wonderful full-color magazine six times a year, which I would guess cost the organization more than the amount of the dues. And you caught me just looking at one of my latest issues here too, because I mean, the color in this, it's, you know, well done. I think the, the, you know, the folks doing this, Greg does a great job with it. And, uh, you know, I always think of TAMS as a first source when it comes to something like tokens and metals. And because the, the individuals who are involved with the organization are very committed to tokens here. And they, they have, obviously, we talked about research, obviously the connection with them has to help when it comes to subjects related to tokens and metals. I, I agree a hundred percent. I don't think the profit motive is the same with tokens and metals as the, as the fascination of the subject. Coins have become a, a commodity and, and I don't say that in a critical way. I still, I still collect numismatic items that aren't tokens and metals. I collect colonial coins selectively. And I have things like a date set of cat bus half dollars. So things that interest me, I tend to collect, but I always come back to tokens and metals because that's the, the most fascinating part of numismatics, at least to me. 
How has your journey, I mean, you talked about the Virginia transportation tokens that you are interested in. What, what other types of tokens and metals do you find an interest in? My interest, it depends on what day of the week it is, because I have a lot of interests and I tend to lose interest in, in certain subjects when I get, quote, done with them. And I think that the one of the fascinations or the uh, draws to tokens is finding them because that's an accomplishment in itself. It's not easy to, to put together a big collection and you have to learn a lot more than what you need from for being a coin collector, which might be just the red book and, and maybe a gray sheet if you want to become a dealer. In tokens, there's a learning curve and it's not necessarily a, a quick one. So you have to be willing to devote the time before you spend the money, or at least you should. One of the elements in any collecting journey has become getting uh, the next generation interested in this. Are you finding that it's a challenge to get younger people interested in tokens because they're not as freely circulated as perhaps they were in the past? That's definitely a factor. There is, I, I do see young people getting interested in that. I taught the American Numismatic Summer Seminar courses for 18 years, and I had young numismatists in every class, and they were generally fascinated by the tokens. So I want to divert ourselves a little bit here because you have, in addition to the tokens and medals and the coins that have played a role in your life, music has played a role in your life a little bit as well, and still does. Tell us a little bit about how you got connected in the field of music. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay. My mother and father met at Juilliard, and my mother was a concert violinist. My dad was a director at Juilliard for a few years, and then he took a job in Virginia as director of the Norfolk Symphony Orchestra. So I grew up playing classical music, and I did that until I was about 15. And two things happened in my life at that point. I became interested in girls, and I got a car. And in the 1950s, playing the violin wasn't necessarily the most cool thing you could do. So I got away from it. I eventually came back to it because of bluegrass music. I, I heard bluegrass music and I was fascinated by the banjo. And so I started playing banjo and eventually I started playing fiddle again also. And these things tend to take a life of their own. I being in the coin business, which I was full time at, at this point, uh, I had I, I would acquire things. I had an ear for it and I had an eye for it. And I would do the same with banjos. And I found that I would buy a banjo if I thought it was a good instrument and maybe worth a little more than what the person wanted for it. And so I started dealing on a very small scale. Well, somewhere along the line, about 30 some years ago, I became tired of traveling to coin shows. And I was wondering, well, what, what in the world can I do to occupy my time? And so I called the builder who had built my house and I had him build a thousand square foot shop. And I, opened, I went in the banjo business. And there's a lot of parallels because good instruments are hard to find, just like good tokens and metals are hard to find. And I'm still involved with that business, but to a lesser extent. But it's just another segment of my life. And I guess my goal in life has been to not have any time where I don't have something to do. 
Certainly sounds as if there's plenty to keep you busy here lately, but I just really appreciate the fact that you're, you're interested in this. And, and the banjo strikes me as kind of unusual because I think it's it's just like tokens are part of an underappreciated side of numismatics. I think the banjo is probably an underappreciated instrument in the grand scheme of music. Would you agree with that? Yes, it is. It, it's not a mainstream instrument, and, and it's not as easy to find a, a banjo, a good one, because most music shops don't understand them well enough. And also, they don't want to put money in an inventory, because for every customer for a banjo, there might be a thousand customers for electric guitars. So they tend to put their money where the big market is. I obviously uh, wasn't smart enough to realize that when I started out. But one of my, and this is an old stale joke, but the, the way to make a million dollars in the banjo business is to start with two million. But I've managed to become a fairly big fish in, in not a pond, maybe a puddle, because it's a very specialized market, but it's, it's worked for me. And that's what it's all about, as long as it works for you. So, Dave, I'm going to ask you to close with this thought right here. What advice would you give to someone who perhaps we've piqued their interest into tokens and metals now? What advice would you give them as far as their next step? I would think an obvious statement would be join TAMS. Join TAMS, spend a little money for books. You know, back when I when I started collecting Civil War tokens, going back to 1961, I guess, I started going to the coin sh- shows. I, uh, there weren't very many of them, but I, I was a member of two coin clubs down there. And I asked everybody, do you have any tokens? Do you have any tokens? And people started bringing them. And at some point, I had about 200 Civil War tokens, and everything I saw appeared to be duplicates. So I thought, well, maybe I've got them all. And then somebody gave me copies of the little black catalogs that the Folds had done on Civil War tokens. I said, holy moly, there's there's more than 10,000 varieties. So it burst a rather big bubble, but it also told me I need to learn more. And I think that's the advice holds true to anybody. Join TAMS, uh, buy books on whatever subject you're interested in. There's a lot of books out there and TAMS has even published a number of them. And if they're still in print, TAMS members get a discount on them. And this puts you in touch with other collectors and it broadens your horizons. And, you know, I think most people, myself included, uh, I'm very available. I will answer people's questions if they email them to me and, and I try to answer them anyway. And I think that, generally speaking, token collectors are very friendly, a very friendly group and very open to conversations and educating other people. Great. And we appreciate the time that you've spent with us here today. We've been talking with Dave Shankman. mostly about tokens and metals, but also about banjos and about the great parts of numismatics and exonomy and the things that you can enjoy. Dave, once again, congratulations on yet another Heath Literary Award, and thank you so much for spending your time with us here today. It was my pleasure, Larry. Good talking to you. And that was Larry's interview with David Shankman. Wow. Glad I... uh stuck around for that. And David is a font of knowledge and just you know, somebody whose who's years of research and, and collecting are evident just in one listen. 
got me fired up. I went and signed up for I went to CivilWarTokens.com because Steve Hayden's got an auction coming up on December 11th. So, you know, it's just a couple of days away. But if you're interested in tokens, there's going to be some great tokens available for that. I think there's 525 lots on that one. So, uh, I mean, just get get an idea. Learn more about tokens. Joining the TAMS, Token and Metals Society, that's a good place to start. The TAMS Journal that Dave mentioned in there is a, a great, great opportunity for you to learn more no matter what your interest is. We're thankful that you're willing to learn because you're listening to us on the podcast. So we thank you once again for being a part of it. Make sure you subscribe and make sure you tell your friends. Until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.